The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. This is Top Docs, and I'm Mike Merrill. Today we're recording at the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival, and I'm speaking with Lilu, whose three-part series, A Town Called Victoria, is premiering here today. Is that right, today? That's right, today. It's pretty exciting. Congratulations, Lee. Thank you. Your documentary focuses, in part, I'd say, on the burning of a mosque in a small southern Texas town, Victoria. What first drew you to this town and to this story? So I grew up in a town called Sugarland, which is about an hour and a half close to Victoria itself. It's more north than Victoria. But the day that it happened, so many of the people that I went to school with or people that I'd known in the region had not only posted about it, but they had people that they knew within Victoria's community that this was their boss. And this was obviously at a time where we were trying to figure out what our country was going to look like. And it just really broke my heart because this was in our collective backyard. The next day though, however, 500 people showed up at the site of that burnt mosque to actually hold a peace rally, holding signs saying, we put our arms around you in your moment of trauma. We love you as our neighbors. And for me, that really showed the complexity of what it means to be Southern, what it means to be Texan, because you can have that incredible warmth, that neighborly, that community solidarity as well as a burning hate crime in front of you. So the span of that kind of dichotomy of a range of expressions was something that I felt really connected to as a Texan growing up here. And this happened in early 2017. Yes, this actually happened on the night that the travel ban was enacted in 2017, so January 28th in the early hours. This is a three-part series. In the first episode, I argue, it certainly covers the burning and the immediate aftermath. But really, I think in many ways, you're trying to paint a picture of the town itself. What steps did you take to turn that? Yeah, I think the first episode is much like me descending into this town, not really knowing too much about it. What are the things that would jump out at you on the offset? You know, what are the kinds of people you would meet? What are the histories that are there? And just to get a sense of what the town is, both pictorially and also socially. I think episode one is a great introduction to the town and anyone that's from any community, small town or not, can get a sense of what it's like to first step into a place and get introduced to it. As we said, that first episode, we get a sense that there may be a little bit of casual racism, a little bit of casual anti-Muslim sentiment, but I think it's the second episode, I feel like it turns a bit. And the moment that I felt like it really turned in the second episode was you're filming at a soup kitchen and the food has been made and brought by the Islamic Center. And you interviewed two men who admittedly are very likely on kind of the edges of society. They're eating in a soup kitchen. One man, when you ask about the burning, says, hey, look, the town got behind. That was great, wasn't it? The other man says, this happened because of Muslim violence. And think about how many cells there may have been in Torrida. And I thought that was the two sides of the town right there in some way. Yeah, I mean, I think... In the first episode, we see the rally. We see there's a GoFundMe that goes viral and you raise a bunch of money 
and the media also really picks up on this good news story. And so you think they're all set, we did well, we can put that behind us and go to the next tragedy to focus on. But if you sit and think about it for two seconds, nothing is ever so clean and so easy. So the second episode really tells you about when after the cameras go away, the true anxiety and stress that this Muslim community in Victoria had to face because they didn't have enough money to rebuild their mosque. They didn't have enough support because now the town can kind of settle down a little bit. And that gentleman actually, what's interesting about the soup kitchen is that it serves a wide range of people. And these are people who are not only on the outskirts, but in the very main central point of Victoria, because poverty is a shared common trait with many different kinds of people, no matter what group or strata you're in. But it's what's interesting about that scene is that they're literally feeding, <laughs> they're providing service for their community. And yet in the midst of all of that, there's a guy who's saying things that Honestly, it doesn't make much sense to me or to anyone. That's why I asked him to repeat himself. But it's something he heard somewhere, either through a news channel or through a friend. But he can't look at the reality in front of him, which is they're serving you. They're here to be your good neighbor. One of the things I think you do so well is a couple of mirroring scenes that they really highlight. So let's start with one, which is, well, it's not scenes, more like sequences. You compare the military service of Mark Perez, who's accused of burning bombs. And then Omar Rashid's son. Can you just talk about the various experiences of the military? That section is probably one of my most proudest parts of the whole series because I think it really shows these people as fathers, as human beings, as parents to children. And especially during that time from when Mark Vincent Perez was revealed as the suspect to the trial, there was so much grace given to this family to say, Look, we're all parents, we're all someone's child. We don't ever wish for a family to have to go through all of this. And the connections that these fathers have to their sons, whether it be through parenting, the issues of masculinity, the issues of patriotism, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to serve? I think it puts them so together in a way that I felt within the unraveling of the story. So. I hope that audiences can see a profound sympathy and profound sense of connection that we have to any character, especially the suspect in his family. Yeah, your treatment of his parents is, is very nuanced. Related to this is another scene in which there's a ceremony in which flags are burned after their service is completed. They're worn out in some ways, so they have to be burned. In this scene, we see a number of children and adults in uniform. They're in a field full of flags. And also very prominent is a giant cross. And, and to further emphasize the implied relationship between patriotism and religion, and, and maybe even race, we hear someone conducting this verse say, speaking for the flag, my white stripes signify God's truths upon which this nation is established. Can you talk about that scene? It's very powerful visually, and the words are very powerful. That scene is packed full of imagery, and I think it's an interesting litmus test or Rorschach test to the viewer. Some people might see that and say, incredible, there's young men learning about patriotism, learning about honoring the flag. But then some might also see it and say, that kind of looks not great with the lit up cross and fire involved and everything. And I think it's a strong scene because it really embodies what we do as filmmakers and image makers and image capturers, sometimes framed in a certain way people can see, whoa, this actually has double meanings or triple meanings sometimes. Right. 
and the stark spectacle of a field of American flags a little cross with a cauldron of fire as they're burning each part of the flag. It just has so much richness to it that I think the viewer can take their own interpretation of what that reminds them of. Yeah. And for us, we were just capturing and taking it all in as well because it was the ritual of patriotism. It was a ritual of passing down, especially with these young men, what it means to honor the flag. And to be a man, too. And to be a man. They paired in Boy Scouts with veterans side by side to perform the burning of a flag, yeah. the retirement of the flag. It's one of my themes, I just speaking to Amanda and Jesse the other day about mission, where young men are in our society. It's very tricky and uh, it's very interesting to see how this was sort of like training for how to be a man. Absolutely. The mirroring scene to my mind here is the 4th of July celebration, which happens at night. We can still see some flags. Some music is played with Spanish lyrics and we hear some of the townsfolks complain about this bitterly and then start talking about their guns. Yeah, this was at the 4th of July celebration and, you know, it's just a community festival and a lot of people are having fun. Kids are out, el the elders are out. Very family-friendly event. And they played Despacito, you know, the Justin Bieber version, you know, that had both English and Spanish lyrics. And all of a sudden I hear in the corner of my ear someone just raging mad raging mad that they were, quote-unquote, speaking Mexican. And how dare they be speaking Mexican on this day of all days. It was a conversation that this then escalated to violence when this person said, well, I got my 22 loaded, I'm ready to go, essentially. And for me, that was just a taste of what it must feel like to live in a community like this and just feel like your being can invite violence, even in a moment of celebration, even in a moment of togetherness. I mean, they were playing Spanish guitar a few seconds ago. There was a band on stage and everyone was enjoying it. But then when the language is spoken, somehow that's not okay. One thing we learn about Brez from the trial is that at least one of his motivations to go after the mosque, and there seem to be a couple, including potentially finding something of value, is that he believes that the members of the mosque must be armed and dangerous. And he talks about like a hit trap door or something. Yes. Again, it sounds a little bit like Pizzagate to me, you know, like there's yes. hidden cash or something somewhere. And of course, it really is a projection because he's the one, and sadly, is armed and he's the one who's dangerous. He's the one who takes violent action. It's interesting, this projection. I think it stands for a broader projection sometimes in our culture, for our own kind of danger to other people. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's all about power as well. Push it on to the immigrants, push it on to this other group, push it on to this other fear, whether it be tangible or existential, because I want to be the victor. I want to be the hero of this story in a way. And there's just so much energy right now, I feel, in our country. It's focused on fear, focused on power, focused on othering. It's a cycle. It's a cycle that draws people in, especially young people, especially young men, to give them purpose, give them a place to be, to feel powerful. And I think that's what drew him to ultimately do what he did. And this is a quote that didn't make the film, but I'll remember it forever. One of our characters, Abe, during the grand opening, he said he went into the mosque looking for a terrorist. I wish he would have passed by the bathroom mirror because he would have seen one. Abe's a very good speaker, as we see at the end of the film. Yes, he um, is. <laughs> just a, a little bit of a side note, but I think it's very interesting, is where you choose to insert yourself in the film. Typically, kind of it's a brief question or clarification, as you said, the men in the soup kitchen. But there are a few instances where you really bring compelling information, particularly to people from the Islamic Center, 
But one of these is when you inform Dr. Hashmi how his life intertwined with Mark Perez's, Mark Perez's. Can you talk about these moments? When do you decide that you're going to be in the film? Yeah, I mean, those were hard. You know, there's a lot to talk about regarding how the filmmaker is or isn't in their films and how much they should carve in terms of a way. But I, I felt like in certain moments, I was the audience conduit. If I felt like the audience wanted to know something as they were watching the film, as we were seeing the story unfold, that's when I would speak up. And sometimes, you know, in small towns, especially in the South, it does take a sense of like, well, wait a minute, what do you, you know, can you clarify this? Or what about this? I used to talk about segregation and talk about history. In the scene that you speak of, this is a piece of information that I had regarding the connection between these two men for almost a year and a half. And it never really felt right to say or to reveal what I knew until that very moment when Dr. Hashmi asked me about something that just opened up that door and I felt that it was right. Yeah, it's a hard thing to decide to do when to speak up and when to include yourself. But I always rooted myself in the seat of the audience. What would the audience be saying? To be like, why aren't you asking them this? Or why aren't you going to this? I never wanted to make it feel like I was inserting my viewpoint or my opinion. I just right. felt like it was something that the collective would want to know. You're having a premiere today. Are some of the members, but yes. is some of the members coming today? We're so blessed and fortunate. We have Omar Rashid and Linnell Manti Rashid, who now live in Turkey. Wow. <laughs> who actually yeah. came in just for our premiere here and are enjoying themselves a lot. We have Susanna Poor, who's also a Victoria resident in the film. And we have a young lady, Sana Saif, who's actually being brought here because she's a, a CAM fellow. The Center for Asian okay. American Media worked with her to make you know a film in an emerging filmmaker program, and she's being brought here for the forum. So we'll have a great selection of people from Victoria celebrating. That's terrific. Today. Yeah. It's really terrific. This can be an independent lens at some point. Yes. So this is a Real South and Independent Lens co-production with amazing support from the Center for Asian American Media. The series will be premiering November 13th. That'll be the first two episodes, one and two, and then 14th will be the third episode. It might vary per location with stations, but that's our nationwide release on both broadcast and streaming. Okay, great. Thank you for being here. Congratulations. Thank you. I uh, really encourage the audience to see this film. Uh, it's very new as a portrait of this town and of some of these deep friends of patriotism and religion that we are struggling with in our country every day. And if I can say one thing, like this series is about Victoria, but we really want to challenge and encourage the viewers to think about their own community as they watch this. You know, what are some pain points? What are some things that your community has not healed from, not talked about have not surfaced yet and think about yourself as a neighbor do you know who lives next to you do you feel connected to the people that you are interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis versus you know what's happening in dc or wherever that you see on the news i think it's a call for people to be more invested in their community